Hello and welcome to the History in Today podcast. I'm Sam Zellin. And I'm Katie Spinata. And uh, we're back this week to talk about government overreach. Uh, it's only been like five, four, four or five days since we last saw you guys. Um, this is our normal scheduled uh, podcast day from now on. We are on app. We are on Spotify. We are on Breaker Podcasts. We are on uh, Google Podcasts. Hopefully, Apple Podcasts soon, uh, and many other places that you can get your podcasts. Uh, so, yeah, happy to announce that. Um, but yeah, today we're talking about government overreach and specifically uh, sedition acts that have been put in place in the last uh, couple centuries. There've been two big ones. Uh, the evolution of the executive branch, and specifically the executive order, and uh, the use of the pardon. So we're going to be talking heavily a lot on presidential and executive matters today. Uh, we're going to try to keep it light. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, do you want to get started with talking about what sedition is, Katie? Okay, um, so as Sam mentioned, um, there are two big sedition acts that have happened in the United States. Um, two of these acts, um, were short-lived and they occurred during times of conflict. Um, the first one, which occurred in 1798, um, it is known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. It was a series of four laws. It basically emerged from the widespread fear that war with France was imminent. It restricted activities of foreign residents in the country and it limited freedom of speech and of the press. And this alarmed many Americans because, as we all know, um, some of these laws are in the Bill of Rights. And from our knowledge of how our country became came to be, the Constitution was not easily passed without a Bill of Rights. So the fact that these these acts have you know challenged things that are in the Bill of Rights um, caused much distress among the American people in a time that already had conflict. Yeah, and um, keep in mind. Keep in mind, this is only eleven years after the Constitution itself had been passed. So it's kind of like they're, you know, they're giving you the document, and now they're saying, "Okay, yeah, remember how we gave you all those freedoms?" And it's only eight years after Bill of Rights. Yeah, remember we gave you all those freedoms? Well, we're gonna roll it back a little bit, and people didn't like that. Yeah. Um, and then there was the Sedition Act of nineteen eighteen. Um, which was expanded on the Espionage Act of 1917 um, because these acts tend to be short. Um, it lasted only until 1921. Um, like the Sedition, Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798, um, stress of war influenced it and brought it about. And it was aimed at socialists and other anti-war sympathizers because at the time, America was very invested on building itself as a major player in the world stage. So it makes it makes sense that anti-war sympathizers would be targeted, but at the same time, it continues to, you know, impede on people's rights, like we mentioned. Yeah, so. I think... It's also like really interesting to take a look at, it's also really sad to take a look at like the Sedition Act, the second one, 1918, where um, they're aiming at socialists and anti-war sympathizers, largely because, you know, they, they really needed support for the war, but also because they were afraid of, they saw this, you know, huge regime regime change in the Soviet Union, which at the, well, at the time had been the Russian Empire, 
becoming the Soviet Union in 1917, and they see, you know, the Espionage Act is declared basically making sure that no one in the U.S. is going to be treasonous and do something similar. But then you have, as I talked about in episode two of this podcast, you know, a couple months ago, you have the Spanish flu. And because of the Sedition Act, uh, which was passed literally during the outset of the Spanish flu, you don't get a lot of conversation about that because people are afraid to criticize the government. So this is, you know, as we see in both of these cases with 1798 and uh, 1918, there is just, there's a lot of ramifications when you take away people's ability to talk. Those ramifications, like we said, come from the fact that our freedoms that are outlined in the Bill of Rights were so integral to our founda- founding as a, as a country. And the fact that for the first one, they were taken away so quickly was very alarming to the people who fought so hard for the Bill of Rights 10 years earlier. And then the fact that, you know, in, in more modern times, it still became an issue is something that, that constantly has Americans on edge. And I think even into modern day, it's something that people worry about. Yeah, so. we definitely have a, we definitely have a, no, I wouldn't say an unwritten rule, but we definitely have an atmosphere in this country where there are some people that are kind of afraid to say certain things about the government, even though we live in a country where like, that's kind of the whole point, you know, criticizing the government is what makes our government so strong, in my opinion, the ability to, but uh, I, th- I definitely think there's kind of a, an atmosphere that some people feel like if they criticize the government, they're going to be targeted or something. Or, well, actually, right now, we're seeing in Portland, especially, uh, New York, starting to get some uh, horrible accounts of these unmasked, uh, unmarked cars with um, ununiformed officers now just picking protesters off the street and taking them in for custody, which... It's not a sedition act, but it's along the same lines of kind of suppression of criticism of the government. Yeah, I think that the reason that these these acts are so scary, too, is that they people question the government in times when change is around the corner. And I think that the fact that this is, you know, been present in our history and it continues to come into, you know, our present day is terrifying because we want change to happen it needs to happen for everyone to be truly equal um and it needs to happen so that our country changes in structure so that it really is beneficial to all Mm -hmm. um and the fact that they're taking away from voices that have already been taken away you know that have already historically been curved um you know against the the modern narrative um is something that makes this a very important topic to talk about today yeah we want to make sure that pretty much protesters are allowed to protest because that's the american way but uh we don't have we don't have too much to talk about in the sedition category and i'm kind of excited to get into the next one so you want to move into the executive branch um yeah sounds good by me so the definition of executive order just so that we can kick off this discussion uh we want to have a foundation here. The definition of an executive order is a rule or order issued by the president that has the force of law. And it is, it doesn't need to be, it doesn't need to go through Congress. It can just be, you know, put out there, but there are ways that it can be stopped. So for example, it can be declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court. That's kind of the way a lot of them get shut down. If they get shut down, 
Um, but also, Congress, in theory, does have the power to get rid of one. Uh, they would have to introduce legislation that would kind of nullify it. But, of course, if they introduce legislation that would nullify it, where does the next place, Katie, that legislation goes? It goes to the president. Yeah. So, obviously, if the president passes a executive order and then Congress wants to fight said executive order, and then he it comes back to him, clearly he's not going to approve that. So he's going to veto it, and then it has to go back to Congress, in which case they need a supermajority, which is two-thirds. Um, and then, you know, we actually get to see. So, basically, <clears throat> to stop an executive order in Congress, you need two-thirds of all of the vote. <coughs> Um, so that's really not the right way to do it. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I got something in my throat. Uh, the other way, of course, is repealing it as a sitting president. So what you see with a lot of executive orders are a president makes one and then the next president comes in and just wipes it out. And that goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So, uh, yeah, to, to, we could keep delving into this, but I know you wanted to have a little talk about the veto. So you have the floor. Yeah, um, so I think that's something that I mentioned to you earlier, Sam, is how I think the veto process is very interesting. And we both agreed that the the veto is essential to checks and balances of our country, obviously. And something that I think you mentioned about about the way the veto plays into the executive order and how, you know, Congress can choose to send the legislation to the president, but then the president can veto it, and then it has to go back to Congress. I think that that kind of just exemplifies the, not the concept of checks and balances, but I think the very nature of checks and balances in and of themselves, because checks and balances ensures that when you, whenever anyone in power, you know, brings something about, it's not something that's like an immediate you know change like it has to like go through this process and so i think a lot of the times in you know politics we don't need to continue to get into this but it we find that you know normal ordinary american citizens find that the government may be ineffective but in reality part of that is checks and balances being in place and having things go th through so slowly because the because the process is so clearly written out for us. Um, so I, I just think that's an interesting part of the veto. And I think that's a clear way that the veto exemplifies the balances. I don't know if you want to talk about it more, but that was just something I thought was interesting. No, I totally agree with you. But yeah, I think, um, you yeah, know, the, the veto is, is definitely an interesting part of our government. It's definitely necessary, but it's kind of a, I don't know. I think putting I think putting like all that power into the hands of just the one person is just an interesting idea. But then, it makes sense. But uh, yeah. So um, with the executive order, uh, I think it's important to talk about kind of how its relevance has gone up since it was introduced at the beginning of you know at the beginning of the country's existence and. I was looking at the numbers of like, you know, per per year, how many how many executive orders are issued by each president. And it's remarkable how different and how big the disparity is. Where James Buchanan, the fifteenth president of the United States, had four per year. And right after that it jumped to Abraham Lincoln, who of course, you know, 
made a lot of executive orders, one of them being the Emancipation Proclamation. And he had 12 per year. And 12 per year at the time was the uh, the record. The average 12 per year was the record for executive orders. But then after that, because Lincoln set this precedent of having more, it proceeded to go up and up and up and up until William McKinley had 41 per year, which is considerable considerable uh, addition to the amount. But then after McKinley, we have Teddy Roosevelt. And Teddy Roosevelt was big on introducing a lot of policies to, uh, you know, bust the trusts and bring fairness to, you know, taking monopoly out of business, all this kind of stuff. Uh, national parks were one of his. And Teddy Roosevelt issued 145 per year. So huge jump from 41 to 145. And then after that, it sets another precedent where it just keeps growing and growing and growing until FDR at peaks his cousin's fifth cousin at 307 per year. Now, 307 is the record currently. And I think it's really important to know that like FDR, first of all, was in power for 12 years and he issued over 3,700 executive orders in his career. So the man was good at it. <laughs> also, he's also kind of the poster child for being shut down, where a lot of his executive orders, a lot of those three-letter programs that he issued were declared unconstitutional. And so Which is why... Sorry, I'm just oh, going to yeah, jump you can, in you can there. Cut in. Um, so I think like a couple episodes back when we were talking about political parties, we were talking about how FDR was known for his court packing plan and how he wanted to stack the court. And I never really thought about this before, but now that we're talking about it, it makes sense because he had so many programs that he wanted to push through via executive order. And if the main issue was that they were being declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, then he would want to, you know, add judges who supported, you know, his programs or supported his ideologies. So that actually, in terms of like, I guess American scandals, because it is considered a, an American scandal in like some form or another, um, that's just something that's really, um, not talked about, which I think is super interesting because that is a a clear example of of trying to upset the checks and balances system because he was using his abilities to try to influence the judicial branch. I don't know. I just yeah. think that's really interesting. And I want to insert that. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree because I think I think with Roosevelt, I think you know we were, we were talking earlier about how he's kind of the essential he's kind of the the quintessential president for government overreach where you know you have all these executive orders you have the fact that he got elected to a fourth term but i also think that the government kind of made a correction after where they made it a law that you can only have two terms they made it you know i'm not sure if they made any laws specifically against executive orders but this tradition of just of, of growth in the executive order market definitely died down after Teddy or after uh, after FDR. Sorry, it's been a long day. But um, <clears throat> I think, uh, yeah, pretty much after FDR, you have Truman, right? His direct successor was the only president to have over 100 per year. Um, and then after that, you have uh, in like the 60s, in the 50s, in the 40s, not not year number, not decade numbers, but amounts of executive orders. Uh, until you get to you get to Bush, you know our generation, Bush, Obama, Trump. Uh, 
none of them are over 50. Uh, Bush averaged in his eight years 36 executive orders per year. Obama uh, pretty much matched it at 35 per year. And Trump is at 49. So we're finally seeing it's trending upward again. Uh, we will see with the next four years what the next four years will bring. But uh, Trump, I remember very, very you know, vividly from his run, talking about how many executive orders Obama used. And when you look at the stats of Barack Obama's executive order resume, where he's making 36 per year and, you know, didn't crack 300 total, 300. And then you look at FDR, considered one of the greatest presidents, made 300 per year and cracked 3,000 easily. I don't think there's really an argument for <laughs> Obama making too many executive orders. I think Trump is, you know, there's also not really an argument for Trump making too many executive orders because, you know, he's nowhere near the precedent of where that can go. But he has no, he has no right to criticize Obama, A, for, you know, being nowhere near the record, and B, for doing more himself. <laughs> right. I think that's something that's interesting about Trump, like you said, Sam, like even though he, you know, has used more executive orders than his predecessors, he also has declared a national emergency in various scenarios. And I think that in some ways, depending on, you know, the situation, um, a national emergency can can be an example of executive overreach as well. Um, and to kind of like go into the definition of that, um, a national emergency is a state of emergency resulting from a danger or threat of danger to a nation from foreign or domestic sources and is usually declared to be in existence by governmental authority. So one of the examples of a national emergency that President Trump declared was the one on the border wall. And when he declared this um, in Arizona, there was a um, series of burial sites that were destroyed, um, Native American burial sites. And so I was having a conversation with one of my professors at UConn, and they explained to me that because this was a national emergency, um, the government does not need to adhere to normal practice or normal law because it is viewed as a, quote, time of war. Um, so this basically allowed to destroy these burial sites um, because they didn't need to follow um, the law that is known as NAGPRA that protects um, burial sites because this wasn't viewed as a time of normal law. So I think that while national emergencies are, you know, very important for the protection of our country, there are times where they can, you know, overstep normal law, which I think is something that not a lot of people know, but it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think... Uh, national emergencies, I'm, I'm actually doing some research currently about them. Um, national emergencies were uh, put into place in 76. And since then, a lot of presidents use them, you know, to a similar amount. Obama used 13. Trump has used five. But of course, you know, in half the time. So we will yet to have seen or maybe we won't see uh, how many he'll get. But uh, <clears throat> so, yes, Trump definitely, you know, used the national emergency there and, you know, to step on land that he shouldn't have been stepping on and also to make a wall that we really don't need but <laughs> um, 
I do think that it's important to kind of give everyone in that scenario, the, the national emergency also does get used by pretty much every president. Of course, though, uh, I'm looking at Obama's national emergencies and none of them really seemed like he was trying to push anything. Uh, of course, I might be a little biased in that, but uh, most of them are dealing with actual like terrorist cells and stuff. Um, yeah, I think that national emergencies only become an issue of concern if they're used by a president to advance their agenda. That's where I think it would come into question. Um, there's a lot of controversy around it that we've all heard about. Um, the one national emergency that one of the five that Trump declared. Um, so we don't have to get into it. But I think that's the importance of, you know, mentioning a national emergency. There's a fine line in making sure that presidents don't mis misuse that power to, you know, push their own own ideas and own initiatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for example, uh, you mentioned the one that Trump did to build the wall. The other one that he is he's used um, was uh, let me find it. Securing the information the information communica communications technology and services supply chain, uh, which looking at it seems basically like they were trying to target Chinese companies like Huawei uh, in the trade war, which seems to have kind of dis disintegrated since COVID started. But he was using it to kind of win the trade war, which some people will agree with, some people won't. Um, <clears throat> do you have something in the background? I, I, can, I keep hearing this little, like, rumbling sound. Sorry, I have my fan going. I'll turn it off. Oh, no worries, no worries. It's, it's fine. I just wanted to make sure. But yeah, uh, do you want to talk about anything else on this or do you want to keep just keep going? I think we're good. I think we've covered, you know, both topics pretty, pretty well. Yeah. Um, and move on. Yeah. Cool. So the last thing we want to talk about is the use of the pardon. So recently, uh, we've been, you know, hearing the term pardon a lot more with, uh, the question going around before the impeachment earlier this year was, you know, can Trump pardon himself? And it seems like the answer is yes, but also We've never really seen, we've never really had to see that scenario play out because he hasn't been convicted. And um, we don't know if we'll have to see that. So that's what we've seen, you know, currently. But uh, the the only other real time before with a pardon being used to kind of just give a president immunity was with Gerald Ford. So the story with Gerald Ford and Richard Nixon is Richard Nixon was very very implicated on the watergate scandal he was you know his fingerprints were all over it everybody knew the writing was on the wall so he you know instead of going into an impeachment uh he did not at all didn't have any hearings didn't have you know didn't get indicted nothing he stepped down and gerald ford his vice president was declared the president so gerald ford's first act of business as president was to give a lifetime pardon to Richard Nixon. Uh, and that's kind of what, that's kind of just like what his presidency was. I think it's it's kind of sad. I know I ragged on him a couple, couple episodes ago, but Gerald Ford's job was basically, you know, he wasn't even in, he wasn't even on the ticket the first time. So he, you know, Agnew, Spiro Agnew, who was on the, on the Nixon ticket for the second go round, uh, resigned himself. So then you have Gerald Ford is brought in basically to fall on the sword. And I feel like when you have something as elaborate as that, where 
you have to come up with a bunch of you have to have a fall guy and you have to come up with a scheme to get people to you know basically save a bunch of people you're not in the right there i think that that definitely falls under the category of government oversight yeah i think that something that also makes it government overreach in a way is that the the federal government through the use of pardons can can pardon people who majorly the american people thought did something wrong so nixon became quickly unpopular because he he meddled with an election and he there was proof of it there were tapes mm -hmm. there was concrete evidence against him and so the american people the, the reason Nixon had to resign was because the American people quickly realized how detrimental that was, which is also very interesting compared to what presidents can get away with today. But the fact that that they were able to or Ford was able to pardon Nixon for something that was popularly deemed unacceptable by the American people is is interesting in kind of in terms of overreach because it completely ignores the voices of the country that these officials are elected to represent um so that's kind of a unconditional um or untraditional way of like looking at it um federal overreach in general that is yeah i think you know we you know we look at you know the pardon the pardon the pardon specifically just like even without talking about like specific examples is just kind of another weird little facet of executive power that I don't really, I, I think it, I think the pardon, you know, I'm going to go off a little bit on tangent here. I think the pardon is one of the vestigial structures from Kings where I feel like the, the founding fathers didn't want a King, but a lot of them kind of did. A lot of them wanted Washington to kind of have this lifetime rule, but I think that's adding things like the pardon and the executive order, which is basically just like the executive order is basically just a royal decree. Um, mm -hmm. It's this vestigial structure of kind of wanting to have that over overarching monarchical structure where we've never had that in this country. And the executive branch is very much not, I, in my opinion, it's not even the most powerful of the three, but I definitely think this there's part of the constitution that that wants to have that and do you agree with that oh absolutely i think that that what speaks to that even more is the fact that when you're going about change in any way you seek what's comfortable first so in terms of evaluating where you know the founding fathers came from where they're direct you know like people second no worries. No, so as I was saying, sorry about that. Um, it, it's it, when you evaluate where they come from in the context of the time that they were living in and the fact that, you know, not everyone in the colonies was, you know, on board with completely separating from Britain at the time. Um, those are all definitely factors that have made it into the constitution more covertly, which is interesting to talk about because that's not something that's usually discussed anywhere. I think this is the first time I've had a conversation of that nature, but I think that, that speaks to why it's important to learn 
about the history of Britain as well and England as well when you're talking about the history of America because you can't have America without having the history of Britain as well. So yeah, I saw this great joke that's just like basically saying that America is just like a a Britain fan fiction where <laughs> they're like, what if we took Britain and like put it in a new land and changed a bunch of the rules? <laughs> But uh, so I thought that was a, a funny way to think of it. But in a way, like, it definitely has some truth to it where there are definitely some echoes of, you know, obviously we have written, we have a written constitution and they don't. But, you know, the, a lot of the laws are still the same. But, uh, yeah, I think I think Britain is, you know, it, it's a, it's relevant. And I think it's also a good way to kind of segue in, you know, this is definitely going to be a shorter episode. It's kind of a se uh, interesting way to segue into the project that we are planning on putting together for the next two weeks. So do you want to talk about it or should I? Uh, we can both talk about it a little bit, right. um, but I, yeah, I can you go start. Um, so Sam and I were talking about things that are important in society today, because that is what we do when we create these podcasts. Um, and so something that came up was the expectation of dominant cultures expecting people of you know less less like less popular cultures i guess um minority cultures anything of that nature um it essentially is the expectation that they mold into the dominant culture and so we were talking about that and then we were like wow like imperialism really hits that on the head and so we're going to talk about imperialism in a two-part episode and we're going to focus not only on the origins of imperialism and dive into how it plays out on the world stage not just america we've been talking a lot about american history um, but we're going to dive outside of that a little bit and talk about how it's played out in other countries um, we're going to then move into, you know, the more modern period. And the reason that we decided to split it into two episodes is because we want to give it the amount of time that it that it deserves because imperialism has happened for a majority of our history and it continues to happen into the modern day. So we can't just dedicate one episode to it. It would be hours long. Yeah. Um, I think we, so. yeah, we were actually trying to, we were trying to sit down and write an episode for imperialism today. And we realized we're like, we just don't have a three hour time slot here. So <laughs> instead we get, you know, a shorter episode today, but I want, we were going to bring you two very juicy episodes in a row. Uh, I'm thinking it's probably, you know, obviously still hasn't been really fully uh, visualized yet, but I'm thinking we're probably going to do more of a backstory episode for episode nine and then episode 10, which I guess you can think of this kind of as like the, the two part season finale. Uh, of season one of history and today uh, <laughs> uh yeah we're gonna have kind of like a backstory and some build-up uh talking about all the different imperial like imperialist governments and imperialist attitudes that have existed and then we can really just kind of tie that in and bring that home in in episode 10 so uh yeah i hope you guys enjoyed this you know kind of coming back to the uh the shorter episode for it's still longer than most of the first episodes coming back to the shorter episode for uh this week uh you guys got the one on sunday you get the one on wednesday we will be back next wednesday for imperialism part one uh please like us on facebook instagram and twitter um anything else you want to say katie 
Um, no, just thanks again. I love having these conversations. They're great to have. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, hope you guys have a great week and we will see you next Wednesday. Bye.